Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. And of course, read us over at IndieCorners.com. I'm joined uh, by my good friend, co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. I have found working internet to be able to record this podcast. And I've, I'm confident this is our last draft podcast, Mark. You're confident? Yeah, sure? I, don't, I don't think we have. I don't think we have another one of these scheduled before Thursday. Yeah, I. Uh, we'll see. I, I'm. I'm. I'm less confident than you are. Uh, I'm. I'm hopeful that this is a, our last draft podcast uh, before the draft. More just because I just. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then? Um, but yeah, who are we? Oh, talking I, about? I guess I well, should specify. I'm not necessarily confident we won't be doing an emergency draft slash trade podcast. I am confident this is the last podcast oh, okay. of us can, breaking get, down prospects. That, then. that definitely in agreement now. So who are we talking about today? So today we've once again scanned the list of who the Pacers have brought in for workouts and we've pivoted to the second round. Go back and listen. I think we have 10 episodes on pick number six, if you haven't heard all of those more thorough breakdowns with our list of great guests yet. But we're going to cover Jake LaRavia from Wake Forest, which people here in Indiana will be familiar with, Max Christie from Michigan State, and Keon Ellis from Alabama. Uh, who do you want to get started with? You want to start with Jake? Um, sure. Why not? Okay. Um, I guess I'll just turn it over to you right away. What were your first impressions of watching Jake and, and you know what, what you think of his uh, potential translation to the NBA. Yeah. So right off the top, when he wasn't originally on the list, he just now worked out for the Pacers yesterday. When we did the episode on Friday, I would have put him in the grouping of three, just because you and I had watched, um, Wake Forest play Duke whenever we did the podcast on AJ Griffin. And a lot of times, I don't know what your process is, but a lot of times when we're watching these games, I'm so intently focused on that player that I don't always, notice necessarily what specific players from the other team are doing but I did notice some things about Jake LaRavia in that game that I thought were intriguing so um, I think my overall take on him this is going to sound kind of strange because his shooting stroke is as smooth as it is and he obviously shot very well from the corners and just his overall catch and shoot three um, type player but I think my thinking is that the type of team that drafts him needs to be And I tweeted this on Saturday if people want to look at the clips that I have, but they need to be creative because I think he can do a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. And I also don't know that I would necessarily classify him as like an elite spot up guy to the point where it feels to me that if you're not going to be willing to tap into some of the other stuff that he does, it's possible that if he just got like pigeonholed as a spot up guy that you would eventually find a better spot up guy. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. Um, like the shot is especially like just looking at percentages and indicators. It's good. But I also think like he's somebody I want to see a lot more in terms of how can his versatility as a shooter grow. But like you mentioned too, 
Um, like what makes him the most interesting to me is his passing ability. Um, like, and it's not like you, you read 3.7 assists per game. You're like, okay, that's, that's interesting. But I think his, his passing really pops for me on film. Like it's a lot of just good intuitive stuff, like coming off cuts, you know, there's two guys at the rim and he finds a quick dump off. Like it's all very quick reactive stuff. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see what he could do as more of like a roller and, and screener at the next level and how his passing could, could look from there. And also too, I mean, he has, he has really quality ball handling chops for his size as well. Like, okay, maybe you can do some fun stuff like running inverted pick and roller, um, just doing the most to get out of, uh, get stuff out of his skill set, like you're mentioning. Yeah. I like that you bring up the passing because when we talked about Christian Brown on Friday, like he can do a little bit of passing too, but the difference between he and Jake LaRavia is, Christian's going to drive mostly in a straight line. And mm-hmm. once, you know, he gets cut off by the defense, he's going to have to be patient and hope that somebody cuts or he might find the open guy there. Whereas Jake does, you know, he can drive the baseline and be from underneath the basket and make a kick out. Or, you know, he can be a, like that wing connector player where if you do pass it, like what you're saying, if you do pass it to him on the cut or, you know, he does a catch and drive out of a closeout that, he's going to be able to keep the action flowing and get to the next play. Um, I shared it on Saturday, but the chemistry between him and Alondis Williams is really just pretty splendid and everything Mm -hmm. that they were able to do. It's not like a huge sample size, but one of my favorite plays that they ran was like a five out backdoor play where it's a handoff for Alondis to get um, the ball up top. And then Jake kind of shifts up from the corner and backdoor cuts and it works because they're putting the center at the elbow looks like he's going to go set a screen so the opposing center doesn't sag back and protect the basket on that cut. The one thing that really stood out to me about it is I, I, it's pretty stunning how much that continued to work throughout the season when surely every team had that play on film. But two things is that they could actually flip-flop roles in the way that you're saying. Like sometimes Williams would be the cutter and you could bring Jake off the handoff and he could make that pass. And if you go and look at the clips, it's not an easy pass to thread that um, with a quick whip with your offhand going into it. Mm-hmm. And beyond that is Miami. I watched Wake Forest play Miami. They trapped it as they normally do, being aggressive, trapping handoffs and ball screens. He goes on the cut because they trap it. They're able to sniff out the cut. He sees it, immediately stops on a dime and tries to get into high-low action when the ball gets sent to the center there at the elbow. When that's not there, he backs out of it, gets it, is able to catch and drive, make a play, get the ball to the next thing, swing, swing, pass, they make a three. Like you can just see that he has the ability to be some degree of connective tissue. And then what you're saying with inverted pick and roll, it's not a very high sample size, but they did do a lot of two-man game with he and Williams where, you know, what stands out to me a lot is that Jay can play both sides of the pick and roll. He could be the ball handler or he could be the screener in, in the right settings, but they ran four or five pick and roll where he could do a bully drive against Miami center or he could be the ball handler. And if he gets a guard, he might be able to go into like a Barkley drive or, you know, get to the basket and make a pass from there as well. So there's not a lot of guys who can be the screener, you know, slip out into space and shoot a three. They play North Carolina. He's able to get on the short roll and get fouled there or be the ball handler in the situations I just described. That's a lot of versatility. So I hope that the team that drafts him is willing to look at all those different options. I mean, I will say, and I'll get your feedback here. I don't know that I think he has a lot of upside as a 
pull up shooter. Yeah. So no, what you're doing with him as a pick and roll ball handler, which I totally agree with you, I would use him in inverts, inverted settings, especially in two man game, depending upon who, what defenders are involved. But I don't know that I see that he has a lot of pull up potential currently in part because he shoots such a set shot. Like he doesn't get a lot of elevation. So for him to be able to pull up and get into that, it wasn't um, particularly pretty in the low sample size that he tried to get to that. Yeah, that's not something that I see for him either. But I, I want to transition to what did you think of his defense? You know what's interesting is I try not to go into any of these with like preconceived notions, but like just looking at him, I kind of anticipated like mm, probably going to see some iffy spots there. And I'm not saying that he's like an elite defender, but I don't think it was quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like he's not particularly quick on his feet, but I mean, he guarded Bancaro in that he, shifted between Bancaro and AJ Griffin in those two, I mean, in that game against Duke. And that was in part why I noticed him because he had some decent one-on-one possessions at the nail against Bancaro in isolation. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, and what's kind of funny about that is both of them are pretty good nail scores all on their own, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that you'd have to use them in the right setting. Like, you know, if the Pacers like they did toward the back end of the season are, are going to switch up the line on Chicago action, I think he'd be okay there if he was guarding the second screener and had to switch out to the ball as they're funneling that back. Or even if you like chased over the top and switched, I think that that would be okay for him more so Mm -hmm. than like, you know, I'm not saying that you'd be switching him out against quick guards and hoping for good results, but overall I didn't think his defense was as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah. I think he's somebody I look at who has like a lot of, uh, like he has some positive instincts and, and abilities on the defensive end, but to me, it's going to be much more of saying masking him is going to be the wrong way to put it. But I think trying to keep him out of precarious situations because yeah. like he, like, like you mentioned, I think he's not quite big enough to guard a lot of bigs uh, or just bigger players in general, but he also, I wouldn't say that he's quite the athlete that you're going to trust to guard out in space, but I do think he can make quality plays, you know, off the ball. But again, it's going to be more of like, okay, can I, can we put him, in a place that's that's maximizing him and so a lot would be okay do you have a point of attack defender on the team that that you take early on like let's say you draft johnny davis and you have jake laravia playing off the ball then i'm a lot more confident in that if you have uh if you have jake laravia and you did not draft somebody who was helping you at the point of attack go back to go and do not collect 200 because i think that would be uh that would be tough yeah I man i think i would mainly want him defending fours as much as possible but I do think his off-ball defense is pretty good. I yeah. think that I think that he makes the right rotations mainly and does a pretty good job of of watching the passer's eyes and occasionally sniffing out some passes there. So like I don't think he's a plus defender, but I don't think yeah. he's a massive liability either. Yeah. I guess no, is the way I, I would totally put agree. it. I mean, I do think overall, like, how do you feel about him if he was at 31 and that's who the Pacers took? I don't think I would uh it's not like I think it would be bad um i think it would just be more of uh what are they doing you know like what's the what's the process here not that i don't think that there's upside with with drafting someone uh like jake just because he's a little bit older but i think it's more so like okay to me like somebody who we're going to talk about in max christian i think i'd be a little bit more interested perhaps in you know if you're trying to take an upside play here but I, i don't know if you're in that same line yeah i mean that was mainly how i felt last week when we talked about josh minot and christian brown Mm-hmm. Um, in this case though, like I just watching his, um, chemistry with, 
Williams, I think that there's a lot that you could do with he and Tyrese Halliburton and like hybrid units potentially. Um, I just, I just really like the overall, like, I think w- when we talked prior in our, uh, player review pods about who would win in a game of five on five between five Terry Taylors and five O'Shea Brissettes, I think it would be really fun to add in a third grouping of five Jake Laravias and do, you know, let them play the winner of those two battles. Cause I, I just, I like that type of archetype of player who can do a lot of different things. And we didn't even mention that of all the prospects that we've watched, Jake might be the best and most intuitive cutter. It's close between he and Benedict Matherin, to be honest, because it's not just Jake doing that set play that I mentioned before. He's also like O'Shea in that he does a lot of cut assists where he's cutting to open up other teammates on the backside. So I value a lot of that type of stuff. I like resourceful guys who can find their own usage. I think he can do some of that. And the one difference too is like O'Shea is a very good cutter, but he's not a very good finisher on those cuts. Like his efficiency on that play graded out as poor on synergy this year, even though he really does a good job of timing it. It just goes back to his overall issues as a finisher when he gets to the basket. I don't necessarily think, I mean, it's possible that because of what Jake's athleticism is that that might be a thing, but he overall finished better in those settings and gets a lot of dunks out of that as well, at least at the college level. So um, I don't think that I would have a problem with it if they took him. I, I, I value, you know, having this type of player, even if it is that they're trying to get younger and rebuild just because I think that he could really play with Tyrese and potentially not to the full extent, but also with TJ McConnell, if they were playing in bench units, I think that there's fun stuff that you could do that they really haven't had at the four spot. Um, at the backup role. Yeah, no, I, I I think I totally agree with you. Um, especially when you're getting, like you mentioned, like having like the 31st overall pick, I don't think you can just go wrong with selecting a good player. Um, so yeah, excuse me. Who do you want to transition to next? Well, I think Max Christie of these three is probably the other one who would be available at 31. So why don't we head there? Yeah. Um, what were your thoughts on, on Max just in general? This is, I don't know how you're going to take this, but we had watched several Michigan state games throughout this process as well. So this was kind of helpful because we watched Michigan state play Ohio state. We watched them play Purdue. Um, I think we watched them play when we did the Keegan Murray pod as well. So like I, mm-hmm. we had seen a handful of these games before I did more prep for this this week. He kind of reminds me of if Jeremy lamb could play better defense. Yeah, no, honestly, I think that's a really good way to put it. I, I kind of like that. Um, like, yeah, I, I I like that a lot. Because I, I think, think if you're pointing out his like main crystallized thing that he does, it's mainly like coming off. It's not it's not him coming into a floater off of a curl, but coming off of curl screens into pull up twos is like kind mm-hmm. of his jam. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think uh, he's interesting because he was somebody who. Like, I think he had really bright moments this year, but he definitely struggled a lot with size and physicality, like being yeah. a pretty young player. Uh, you can tell, like, he definitely has room to add to his frame. He's got good size, um, which, you know, again, and you're doing a lot more in terms of projecting out. But I think uh, he's somebody who's going to be very, very shot dependent, like what happens with his jumper and where it gets to. Um, like, like you mentioned, I think he's interesting to me, too, because he shows uh, and especially too, like going back and watching some of his pre-college stuff. Um, he shows some really interesting stuff as like a pick and roll ball handler. Not again, like not as somebody who's leading things, but as somebody who can make a player too, um, 
with, you know, if he's getting an over, uh, you know, if he's able to, um, you know, flow into a secondary pick and roll, I'm like, okay, I think he can hit a pocket pass. I think he can throw a lot. Like I actually felt like pretty decent about him as a lob passer this year. Um, But a lot is going to be, can you make the defense care enough? And, you know, that's, that's a whole other thing, but I, I, especially like you mentioned with the defense too, I think like he is a very deceiving looking defender. Someone he's got high hips. He's, he's pretty, I think he was what, like 180 on a good day at like six, 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 seven. And, uh, but honestly, very solid tracking off the ball. And I thought that he made some really good plays uh, as a low man throughout the year as well. Active hands, obviously going to struggle with physicality against bigger wings, but um, generally like pretty impressed with him defensively. Yeah. I mean, his steal and block rates weren't really going to jump off the page, mm-hmm. but I did think that he did. Okay. Staying skinny through some screens on ball. I think you could cross match him on those, some ones. Some of that's a little bit deceptive because Michigan state played at the level so much, like, especially in that game against mm-hmm. Wisconsin, they were really doing that. So then guys are slipping out of screens, So it's not like he's having to hit as much contact. So it's a little bit harder to judge what would happen if somebody was like actually setting a hard pick in those situations. Mm-hmm. But um, when they played Ohio state down the stretch, they put him on to Johnny Davis and Johnny Davis was dealing with the ankle injury. Like we mentioned on that podcast, he didn't have a great game the last like three or four games of the season, but I mean, he put the clamps on him. Those yeah. like last three or four shots. He couldn't get anywhere. He couldn't do what he wanted to do. I was fairly impressed with his defense in that particular game. Wasn't quite as standout against Jaden Ivy. Felt like he really needed to back off. Like so many people do to account for his explosiveness. And then he was giving up too much space on the shot. But um, yeah, we, we talk about his three pointer and that's why I said, he really does remind me of Jeremy lamb because like if Jeremy lamb's three could have ever been consistent over a longer period of time, you look at him a little bit differently. So Max Christie, I wonder how much like, you know, what you're mentioning with the frame and then just the overall wear on the tear of the season impacted him. Cause he shot 24% from three over the last 16 games. Mm-hmm. So it definitely seemed like there was a drain as the year went on. Um, I don't think his actual stroke looks bad, but it does yeah. kind of like, and this is going to sound like a really weird comparison because Josh Minot has a lot more issues with his shot than Max Christie, who has a real smoothness to his overall game. But he, like Josh Minot, does like to dip the ball pretty far down below yeah. his waist. So I think that that would probably need to be corrected a little bit, but I don't know that that's like a major tweak that would need to be made, but it's a tough combination when you're that inconsistent from three and then your finishing is what it is. Cause synergy has him as a 40.9% on his rim attempts. And it's what you're, it's what you're mentioning. Like he doesn't hold up off of two feet when he goes into bigs with physicality. And then when he's going off of one, it's like the O'Shea Bursette problem. Mm-hmm. And then he takes off way too early from the basket, like his footwork's going to need cleaned up, but you can't be shooting 40.9% at the rim and also 24% from three. Like one of those two things are going to have to give because as much as it was fun at times to watch Jeremy Lamb be, you know, super smooth and getting to his spots and floating off those soft teardrops, that, that utility only goes so far. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to be so good at it that it's worth doing because if Jeremy's, you know, if his, if he's not shooting 52% on elbow jumpers, then the defense doesn't care. And it's not really impacting the defense. So it's just, yeah, exactly. Um, and he also likes the Dwayne Washington inside hand finishes. He does and, like those. And nobody care. And like, they don't work much like Dwayne Washington's don't work all that often either, unless he's in transition. But um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I, I do think, um, like you mentioned with the jumper, though, I think the biggest thing for me is is just quickness on him. Um, like, I, I think trying to find that is going to be so important because, um, you know, I like just quickness in general, I think with his jumper, like even when he was, he was uh, getting into his pull-ups and stuff. I do think like there were times where I'm just like, okay, if this is just a little bit quicker, if you're getting in your process quicker, I think that there's more viability in it. Um, so yeah, that's again, just the last thing I want to hit on with that. Yeah. I think that mainly sums him up. How would you feel if the Pacers took him at number 31? I think I'd be cool with it. Like, again, I think it's more just knowing, trying to figure out what their direction is. Um, as we've talked about, it feels like it always comes back to that. Um, but I would be pretty cool with that. I, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not that these two would be in direct competition, but we didn't really get into this on the last podcast or really so much at all. So I kind of want to get your thoughts. We've talked a little about it a little bit off air, but how do you feel about the amount like there is a pretty high potential here on Thursday that unless they move up or move down, that a shooting guard is going to be who they take at number six, because that's who's going to be on the board, whether it's, you know, Matherin, Johnny Davis. I mean, I would say Jay Griffin's more of probably a four at this point in time because of mm-hmm. what his defensive issues are. But you see my point and the fact that they've been connected to or prior to Jalen Brunson. Then it seemed like they were being connected to Colin Sexton and rumors. And, you know, some of that's just going to be because they have cap space. Like, I think sometimes it's going to get put out there that teams with cap space are interested in players because agents are trying to drum up markets. Mm. But it does seem like, you know, that's a potential to be out there. So how do you view that through the lens of Chris Duarte? Or if they took another guy like this at number 31 as well, not that you would automatically be playing that guy in front of Chris Duarte, but you see my point. Yeah, no, I totally understand. Um, I think if he's not going to start next year, I think they should trade him if we're being honest. That's um, how I feel as well. Yeah, like if like I think he's clearly capable of being a starter. Um, it, like I, I should say, if the if like Malcolm gets moved, I think it's pretty clear that he would demand uh, what his saying, not that he'd personally demand it, but like his play is enough to demand a starting spot in the lineup. And if that's not going to happen, then I just what are we doing here? So um, that's generally how I feel as well, because I mean, just hearing some of those rumors, I do think that the interest in Jalen Brunson was most likely real, especially because of, you know, most of the coaching staff's connections to him in Dallas. Like it just comes across as they weren't really sold on Chris as a starter in year two. And I'm not entirely sure I understand why, especially like if you do think you're going to rebuild and get younger, why that wouldn't happen. I mean, we are seeing a lot of images of, you know, the future starts now and it's Tyrese and Chris and Isaiah Jackson. But I do agree that if they, if they are already ruling out that they don't think that he's going to be participating as a starter, he just turned 25 years old. Um, I think he would be valuable to a lot of other teams and the sense that, I mean, we have talked about this. I think he probably plays for golden state. If he gets drafted by golden state during that Mm. playoff run, I think he's probably a rotation player and gets minutes. So if a contending type team or a playoff team would be interested in him in a bench role and you can get future picks or, you know, that allows you to move up or to get, you know, whoever else might be out on in the trade sign and trade market. I don't think I would be opposed to it. If that's how the Pacers are already viewing him. If they're prepared to start him, I like Chris. I like what he brings. I'd like to see what he could do in that role before I make a final evaluation. But I don't really see the point of already looking for, you know, throwing a bag at Colin Sexton or whoever it is, and then just moving Chris to a bench role if you're not going to look into moving him. 
yeah no it would be confusing to me as well um well do you want to do you want to dive into our last player i definitely do keon ellis is interesting because once again i don't know how this turned out this way but we watched a lot of alabama games as well so Mm -hmm. we watched alabama play auburn um we watched alabama play memphis i think we watched them play lsu as well and i do want to get into the lsu game a little bit because um, my enduring memory of Keon on Keon, whenever you picked that you wanted to do him for this pod, was the play at the end of the game that Tari Easton sniffed out from the strong side corner when Keon Ellis was the ghost screener, popped to the wing. He anticipated that play the whole way and blocked him at the peak of his release and then went down and, and scored the other way. So unfortunately, that's what I went into remembering of him. But do you remember anything else about Keon from that particular game? Something else stood out to me a lot about him. And also in conjunction with that question, did you see what his height is listed at from the combine? Not great. He is somebody who definitely got hurt by the combine in my eyes. Um, Because did you see what he's listed at weight-wise right now? No, I did not see the weight, but I did see the height. Uh, He, if I remember correctly, he ended up like 6'3 and 3 quarters. Is that correct? Yeah. So Alabama yeah. listed him at six, six and the combine has a, him at six, three and a half. Yeah. And, uh, that was in shoes, right? Or was that out of shoes? I think it was in shoes. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it was in shoes, which is like, Oh, um, and I think he was one sixty eight. So it's like, he is very slight. He's very small right now. Like he has a big wingspan to be fair too. But, um, I think going back through and watching more of him like that, I don't want to say that it stood out more just after seeing the numbers, but I do think like throughout the year, I was like repeatedly writing down like, Oh wow. Like Keon looks small out there. Um, I do think like defensively, like there's a lot of intrigue there. Like he plays the passing lanes really well. Um, How do you feel about a screen navigation? Yeah. So this is what I was getting to that when I watched that LSU game, what I remembered from it, and then I went back and watched it again over the weekend, just with a more focus on him is that when Tari came in off the bench and they were playing him at the five, Keon Ellis was his primary assignment. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was like, this guy's six, six. I'm thinking probably not. And then <laughs> I looked up the combine numbers. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. But the reason they were doing it, I mean, they weren't, to be fair, like Tari wasn't getting a lot of deep post touches against him. And also to be fair, like LSU's guards didn't always readily look for that all the time, even when he did. But yeah. um, beyond that, they were doing it because then they could automatically switch Keon onto the ball as soon as Tari went to screen. Because clearly Alabama valued what his on-ball defense was. I think he can cross-match onto some ones. Um, I feel pretty good about his screen navigation. I, overall, I liked him as a defender. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, when we're talking about it, I liked him as a player in general. I mean, he, he definitely knows who he is and doesn't play outside of himself, which yeah. I think is a valuable skill set. Um, you're not going to see, like, just in comparison, this isn't me trying to be super derogative, but there are times in games where Dwayne Washington plays outside of himself a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. And can get ahead of himself in some isolation plays. You're not going to see Keon do that type of stuff. Like, he mainly knows I'm a spot-up shooter. He does a little bit of movement shooting where they run, like, wheel, like, double drag into a stagger, into another stagger, and they'll bring him off of that. So once in a while, he does some ghost screening, like what I said about that Tari block. But mainly, you're just going to see him in the corner spotting up, and then sometimes he might dribble off a closeout, which is, which is another story. But um, I mainly feel good about the shot. Um, I think he's definitely a guy with how much the the Pacers and – as well as the Mavericks when Rick Carlisle was there, that if you're, you know, running one four flat at the end of the game, 
he would be somebody that Rick Carlisle would value in those types of settings. They didn't always use him as the ghost screener, but they would use him in the corner. And then like a guy would step in and it's the corner pin while they're running the ghost screen at the other opposite time. But I think he could fill in in both roles. So, I mean, I definitely think he could play in the Pacers system. Um, even if he started out with the Mad Ants, I think he would be a fit. And obviously the Pacers could use as many defenders as they can get. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I, I agree with that in full, uh, even with the size, like, I think it's important to note, like he just plays good defense. And I do think like there could be some issues playing against more power guards in the NBA, but also yeah. um, he did play against a lot of NBA prospects and look pretty damn good doing it defensively. So I would be a little bit less worried on it. Yeah. The one thing that definitely stood out in the Auburn game, I don't know if I've ever seen a player like when we talk about his screen navigation, he's more so like a rear view pursuit guy. Like it's more about his recovery speed than mm-hmm. like not getting clipped in the first place, but he blocks the player and rear view pursuit pulling up at the elbow. The player catches his own block, puts it down two more times, and then he blocks him again. Yeah. So twice on the same trip to the rim, he got a block and recovery. Um, I don't know that I've actually seen a play quite like that before. Um, I definitely clipped that one and took note of it whenever we saw it. But um, when we're talking about the closeouts, I don't feel very good about his playmaking when he gets stopped on a closeout and what his vision is. He's definitely a guy who wants to leave his feet, um, similar Mm -hmm. to what Chris can do sometimes. And then he's not very creative in terms of being able to shift defenders and find the open person there. That showed up probably three or four times in the LSU game. Yeah, um, he's kind of a. It's interesting too, because like I mean, it's not. I, I wouldn't consider him a bad finisher inside the arc, but it's just like you said, if somebody's meeting him halfway to the rim, what is happening uh, can be very much so a good way to put it. Um, like he's definitely somebody who's going to get run off the line uh, and ask, okay, create from there and see what happens. And I do think like that's stuff that can come from repetition, but also it is not great right now. Right. So in spot up situations, he attempted 117 total shots and only 14 were at the basket. He converted eight, a good conversion rate, but he doesn't always get the full most of his gravity. And when he does get stopped, like I said, I don't necessarily feel great about his passing ability. The other opponent that I forgot that we had already watched Alabama play was against Baylor. And that was another one that was interesting in terms of assignments because Baylor assigned Jeremy Sohan to him. And that felt somewhat telling as well, because the reason they did that was kind of like, you know, what would happen when Robert Covington played for the Sixers? Like the Pacers would put Victor Oladipo on Robert Covington because they knew they could roam because if Robert Covington caught it, there wasn't a lot of risk of what he was going to do off the dribble. Yeah. So like you could see Jeremy Sohan really playing free safety in that game and and coming fairly far off because they weren't too concerned about what else Keon Ellis was going to do aside from shooting. Yeah, no, I think that's a really fair point. But I also just like overall 20,000 foot view, like low usage, efficient wing, pick and chooses the spots can do a little bit of defense. Like if you can get those guys, like, I don't know, his range seems to be all over the place, but if he would be there at number 58 still, like that's probably somebody you take. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Um, like, I don't think it'd be crazy if he goes higher than that too. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, again, this is something, if he was actually six, six, like this is pretty close to a first round player. Like, um, so, but again, he's not six, six. So that's the mental math there for you. But um, is there anything else you want to close out on him or, or any of the other guys? 
No, I think we did. Hopefully people enjoyed listening to all these. We don't have plans to do any more breakdowns of individual players, but when this goes up, I'm going to link all of the posts that we did on the number six pick. And then also Friday's episode, if you want to go back and listen about those three guys, we did not include rumor corner today because it doesn't really seem like there's any updates there. And we already shared our thoughts on potentially moving on from miles Turner and Malcolm Brogdon um, last week. But the next time that we get together and talk, we're going to know who the Pacers drafted. I think, unless we need to have an emergency trade pod. Oh gosh. We'll see what happens with that. Um, Should be interesting. Um, well, Caitlin, this was fun as always to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.